You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Jessica Chiarella on the show with me. She has an amazing new book. It's called The Lost Girls. And, you know, anyone that listens to this show knows that I love thrillers. And this this is right up there uh, with with everything that I love. And, you know, if, if you're looking for something to to read to get out of the heat and to to get uh you know the your summer reading kicked off uh this is a must have uh for your to be read pile for sure welcome to the show jessica thank you so much for having me and thank you for the uh the kind words oh you're so welcome uh jessica we begin each show with the same question and that question is what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller oh that's such a good question um I mean, I remember being quite young. Uh, You know, I always, books were always such a part of my life. Um, My mom is actually a retired librarian who specialized in children's and youth literature. So, I mean, you know, we we were always reading um, as a family and, you know, on our own as kids. And I feel like I remember writing a story for the young author competition, you know, back in the day um, in in schools here in Illinois. And so we all had to write, you know, like a little book that was for this competition. And I just remember thinking, oh, that's, you know, I have so many ideas. This will, you know, like this I can do. And, and just, you know, just sort of pouring, you know, my ideas into this, this little, you know, like, I don't know, five page book. And, you know, that was the the kind of imaginative freedom that I had never felt before was just like, oh, you know, I can put my daydreams down onto paper. And from that point on, you know, I, I think I always did that just for myself. And, you know, it took a long time for me to consider it a vocation and especially to consider it, you know, a profession. But that was, I think realizing that as a little kid, like, oh, the things that I make up in my head, I can put them down on paper was was such a formative moment for me that I think I never really lost um, that sort of enthusiasm. I love that. Um, Jessica, when, uh, you know, as a as a uh, a child, knowing that that you had this creative um gift or or at least the want to have a create the the creative gift um did did that stay with you as you went through adolescence and then you know finishing high school and going to college and um you know a lot of times we'll have these early dreams of doing something and then you know life has a tendency to get in the way and you know you know becoming a grown up and then having to pay bills and all of this you know kind of makes the dream uh you know take a back seat sometimes uh was this something that was was forefront uh, in your mind or did you come back around to writing as so many of us do I yeah I definitely came back around to writing you know because when I was little it was something that I really did for myself and then of course 
you know, I went through a period where people would ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I always said that I wanted to be an author um, because I couldn't think of anything cooler than that, than doing, you know, the thing that I liked to do and that I felt really connected to, um, you know, as my job. And then I kind of hit a wall when I got a little bit older. You know, I was I started reading chapter books and longer books and, you know, started reading novels and then, you know, I, it started to felt or it started to feel bigger than um, I was capable of. You know, I would come up with these great concepts and these little ideas, and I never knew where to take them. You know, once I got the beginning written, you know, as a young writer, I sort of didn't know what to do anymore. And I thought that meant that I wasn't very good at it. And so I saw writing for a lot of years, especially, you know, into my teenage years as something that I enjoyed to do, but was not very talented at. So I, I decided not to focus on that. And I went to college and studied political science and, you know, was thinking about going to law school. And when I graduated, you know, I just, I sort of took a hard look at adult life and, you know, what, where I wanted to go with it and thought there's nothing that I enjoy more than creative writing. You know, I was still writing stories for myself in my free time, you know, aside from like all the college coursework that I had, I was also writing just for fun. And so my, um, my college had, my university had um, a master's in writing and publishing program that was pretty new at the time. And I thought there would be nothing better than going to grad school for creative writing and just doing this in graduate school. And, you know, not even thinking, oh, I'm going to be a professional writer. All I could think was for the next two years, if I could just focus on, you know, creative writing, that would be a, an amazing way to spend a couple of years, especially during the Great Recession. And right. from from there, it just sort of, you know, I learned how to really structure a story and then I learned how to write a novel. and. Um, you know, it just kind of, I got great feedback from professors, you know, I got great feedback from my peers, and I just sort of realized that, oh, this is something that I can and, and probably should take very seriously. Jessica, was there a writer, uh, and maybe not the writer per se, um, but a book or a series of books that you held in your mind as kind of the gold standard of of someone or a, a work um, that that met that criteria for you that 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 you know for you could transport you to another place and and ab absorb you into a story. Um, was there something in your mind that you kind of held as the standard of you know this is what I want to uh, this this is who I want to be like or the who I want to write like or this is a story like I would like to tell. Yeah, there are actually two um, sort of primary texts that come to mind. And one um, is White Oleander by Janet Fitch, which is oh, yeah. one of my favorite books of all time. I read it when I was 15 and it was revelatory for me because up until that point, I had been reading a lot of, you know, first children's books and then YA literature, which, you know, were all very good. I mean, my mom is a great librarian and she knew how to, you know, choose them um, so that I was always reading great stuff. But there was something about reading an adult book about um, a girl of my age at the time who, you know, was not trying to be good, who sort of did not have 
the classical moral compass that you see in a lot of female protagonists written to be that age. I mean, Astrid Magnuson and White Oleander, you know, is completely sort of exists and thinks completely outside of traditional morality. And for that to see, you know, a, a girl character with that mindset was so intriguing and so freeing for me. And that book is written so beautifully that, you know, I just remember tearing through it and thinking, you know, God, I want every book that is like this. And in every book I want to write, I want to be like this. Um, so that was one. And then the second was uh, The Time Traveler's Wife by Adriana Finnegar, which uh, kind of showed me a way to ground um, like a speculative concept of sci-fi or, you know, a, a concept that exists in the world of magical realism, you know, within a world that anyone would recognize. And that is kind of the sweet spot where when I'm writing speculative fiction, I like to ground my stories, which is, this is our world. This is, you know, you're not on a different planet. You're not in a different dimension. You're not 50 years in the future. This is, you know, a world that we can recognize now that has something that is different for the characters who are, you know, driving the story. And the Time Traveler, Traveler's Life does that so beautifully and it is so complex and it is so layered um, that that for me has always been kind of the gold standard of um, speculative fiction that I write towards when I'm writing in that genre. And, and I know exactly what you mean uh, when you describe that book because it, The Time Traveler's Wife is one of those stories that feels like it could it, – it, it's completely plausible um, even though uh, even though it's not. Mm -hmm. um, but it feels like it could be, and and it it feels like that you are, um, you're just along for the journey. Of course, this could have happened. Of course, this you know could unfold this way. And I, I, I know exactly what you say when you say that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the sweet spot right there, which is like, you know, I feel like it's too easy to say oh, you know, like, this is just the way that society is now, you know, this sort of, you know, weird, different practices, commonplace. No, I like to root it in, you know, in today, or even, you know, she even roots it a bit in the past. And it, it's so interesting to see a concept deployed in that way that it's like, no, this is not something, you know, that is different that everyone, you know, is used to. This is something that is different that, you know, is dangerous because people are like people don't know what this is. And so, it yeah, it increases the feeling of plausibility and it increases the um, the danger in the text, which is always a good thing. Yeah. Looking for a tool to help you visualize your story before the drafting begins? PlotPins is cloud-based and optimized for any device. There's nothing to download. From the new writer who isn't sure how to tell their story to the veteran who can increase their productivity dramatically, we've had experienced writers lay out a detailed structure for several novels in a series in a matter of a few days. The app takes you through four steps of the process, the concept or logline. Make sure you have a solid concept that you can keep coming back to throughout the process. The outline, 12 beats and three acts, each has a description of what should be happening with examples. The board, 40 cards. We take the 12 beats and add sub-beats to those, breaking it down even further and being very specific about what should go into each. These also have examples and descriptions. Write. 
we take those 40 cards and turn them into a to-do list. For a 50,000 word book, it's about two cards per chapter roughly. We have a beautiful editor built into the app. You can export your manuscript to a PDF anytime with the click of a button. Let Plot Pins help you visualize your writing project. Use code HANK10 to get 10% off Plot Pins. PlotPins.com Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20 or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting. And we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. Um, when I got uh, a copy of your new book, The Lost Girls, from your publisher, uh, when I got the ARC and, and started looking through it, um, there was there was something that kept kind of niggling at the back of my mind. Like, I, I feel like I should know this book, or I, I feel like I should know this author and the more i got to thinking about it and then got to looking um you published and again several years ago and one of my favorite books um at that time i absolutely love this book and i still recommend it to people now Um, thank you and and the the description of the time traveler's wife um knowing that about you um this makes perfect sense um tell me where and again came from and again, actually came to me during a, a novel writing class at DePaul University. It's one of my favorite stories to tell because it was basically a homework assignment. Um, you know, we I was in this novel boot camp, which was a class that took place over two 10-week quarters. In the first 10 weeks, we uh, everyone in the class had to write 60,000 words in 10 weeks. And if you got to 60,000, you got an A. And if you didn't get to 60,000, you failed. So it was just oh, about no production. pressure. No pressure at all. Exactly. Um, everyone 
got an A, by the way, there wasn't anyone in the class who didn't make it, which wow. I think, you know, is a testament to how much we loved this class and how much, you know, you can build the habit of writing every day, even if you haven't been in that habit before. So basically we, we were all writing a thousand words a day, six days a week for 10 weeks. And it was just a crazy pace to maintain. But if your grade is dependent on it, it's, it's amazing how motivated you can be. And well, it's the same concept of NaNoWriMo that, uh, yeah. you know, you write a 50,000 word novel in a month and, yeah. you know, lots and lots of people do it every year. It's absolutely plausible. But getting over that mental hurdle is probably the hardest part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Because it feels insurmountable when you start and then you just realize it's a habit like anything else. Like, it, yeah. you know, it is achievable if you break it down and take it in small parts and just, you know, sit down in the chair every day and do it. It's about dedication. Um, so, yeah, I wrote the first draft of And Again in that class. And then the second 10 weeks was reading each other's work and revising. So I got a lot of very useful early feedback on it and sort of changed it substantially based on some of that feedback. And you know, worked with the professor from that course, Rebecca Johns, on, um, you know, revising it further. And it just became the manuscript that then, um, you know, became and again. And it was it was such a crazy experience to have essentially a school project um, end up getting published. But honestly, it felt really right as it was happening, just because I had no expectations for it at all. And I think that's kind of where the best writing happens is when you're not writing thinking, oh, of course, this will be published. And, you know, so I have to make it perfect. And whatever. it's like I was just, you know, playing jazz. I was just, you know, trying things out. And I think that brought an energy to the work that wouldn't necessarily be there if I thought that I was going to write something that anyone in my life, much less everyone in my life would read, you know? Yeah. Um, I've heard people talk about and again and and say that it's a science fiction novel and um i mean kind of um <laughs> but um i don't really think of it in those terms uh, knowing uh, kind of your love for the time traveler's wife and that's whole sort of magical realism do you do you think that this is more magical realism than it is um you know straight sci-fi how do you categorize that book Definitely. I mean, you know, I like to use the sort of catch-all term speculative fiction. I took a, a course in speculative fiction just because, you know, it covers so many different, um, you know, types of, you know, sci-fi and fantasy and magical realism. It's this, you know, it's this catch-all term for like, it's there's something different. There's something that is going to be fantastical here in some way. But, you know, I don't, I really don't think I like to categorize and again as science fiction because, you know, people ask me, oh, did you research cloning? Did you, you know, did you get down into the the, sci the nitty gritty of the science? And the answer is, oh, no, like I am not qualified to try and figure out how this thing would work if it could. It functions in the narrative like a magical element. It is just you know, something that I, that works because I, as the author, say that it works. Um, so, yeah, I, I really I have a hard time with the the sci fi title because it is it, it it works like magic within the book. So, yeah, I feel more comfortable with magical real realism. But, yeah, I, I tend to use speculative fiction because, um, you know, it, it's easier, I think, to to use a broader term that that more can fit under. Gotcha. Um, from from and again to the new book, The Lost Girls, 
um, that's it. It seems to be um, very different subject matter or very different genre. Um, what what was it that got you thinking about shifting gears to more of a um, of a standard thriller type of story? Yeah, um, it it came out a little bit out of um, writer's block, I'd say. I mean, or just I guess a sense of you know desperation in writing in that. I had, you know, I, so I done my MFA at DePaul and then I, or I did my MA at DePaul and then I did an MFA at UC Riverside. And after that much school, you know, the, the sort of inner critic that I had, you know, after going through all of these workshops and publishing a book and reading reviews and, you know, it just felt like I wasn't writing in the way that I was writing when I wrote and again, you know, I didn't have that freedom of feeling like I didn't have any expectation. I didn't have an audience in mind. I was writing feeling like, you know, the, what I hear, you know, what I heard all the time in workshop really applied to everything that I was writing suddenly. So I was really having a difficult time because I had a very kind of vicious inner critic that would pop up every time I tried to sit down and write. And, you know, I felt like, and again, had set up a, you know, a certain expectation about what my next book would be, and maybe it would be speculative. So I was writing still in that genre. And, you know, I, I, it got to the point where I felt so, you know, stymied that I realized I wasn't really having fun anymore. I wasn't playing jazz in the same way that I was when I wrote And Again. And so I thought, okay, if I was just going to have fun writing a book, what would it be? And I thought, oh, of course it would be a thriller because that's what I read for fun. You know, that, that like when I need an escape, I pick up a thriller when I just need, you know, like a book that is going to transport me that's what I go to. And so I thought, well, maybe I could do that writing a thriller too. Um, so I, I was talking with a friend of mine and I said, what do you think? He's, he's a writer as well. And I said, what do you think if I wrote a thriller? And so we actually, you know, spent some time together sort of hammering out, okay, you know, what would the plot be? What would the twists be? You know, what is the narrative arc here? You know, because, you know, he also read a lot of mysteries. And so he was sort of the perfect person to tap to help me out with this. And, you know, he really sort of helped take me through, Okay, these are the conventions of the genre. You know, this is the structure that you need to work within and, you know, help me figure out how to approach writing a genre that I had never written in before. Um, So that was a lot of fun. That's something that I um, that I don't hear enough of. But I think it's absolutely true for for most writers. If you're not having fun, um, it's going to be a slog. I, yeah. I know there there are lots of people that that are able to write and, and they they treat their writing as, you know, I'm a professional. This is something that I do as my job. I'm going to you know put my butt in the chair and I'm going to you know crank out words because that's what a professional does. And I absolutely agree with that you know you should be able to you know whether you feel like it or not show up and do the work Uh, i think that's important but um you know we all got into this to be creative and to to have fun and to tell stories that excite us and if you're not doing that then you know at some point you might be missing the point yeah i completely agree with that and because you know that was the the sort of you've got to sit yourself down and write every day you know that was how i wrote and again like i thought that was the model that it's like if if you build it they will come if you sit down in the chair inspiration eventually will come and i mean i think i had to learn the hard way with you know a lot of effort being put into something that 
could not have been a joy to read because it was certainly not a joy to write. Um, you know, to realize, oh yeah, it's not just about sitting down in the chair and hammering out your words for the day. You know, you have to sort of go where your interest and your excitement takes you. And if you are not, I mean, I'm not saying it's always going to be fun, but if you're not feeling at least, you know, the pull to work on a particular um, story, I think it, it requires a little bit of evaluation to see if that's the story you really want to be writing. I agree. I agree. So, so tell me uh, if if someone is not familiar with the Lost Girls, what what is your elevator pitch for it? Um, what had who are the characters that we should care about? What happens to them? What what kind of what's the devious thing that you came up with us for? Yeah. Okay. So, my, um, the Lost Girls is about Marty Reese, and she is. Um, a true crime podcaster and the podcast that she has um, done and been successful with has is about the disappearance of her older sister when she when um, Marty was just eight years old. She was walking home with her older sister and they were stopped by a car and her older sister told her to run. And then her older sister got into the car with a man that Marty didn't recognize and was never seen again. And so Marty has sort of spent the past 20 years racked with survivor's guilt, trying desperately to, you know, find an answer to the question of what happened to her sister and, you know, trying to keep her case, you know, her sister's case from going completely cold. And so she creates this podcast where she tells the story of her sister's disappearance and she tells the story of what it did to her family and what it did to her in the aftermath. And as a result, a lot of new leads come up and she's contacted by a woman named Ava Vreeland who believes that Marty's sister's disappearance is connected to um, her own case that involves her own family. Um, and she tries to get Marty to help her invest, investigate these two, you know, parallel cases to see if that linkage really exists. Why do you think it is, Jessica, that um, that we love stories like this? And and I guess uh, an aside to that is um, true crime podcasting has really just erupted, especially over the last um, couple of years. Um what is it that intrigues us about these kinds of stories? Is it because we get to kind of look at the darker side of life from the safety, um, you know, of our reading mm -hmm. chair and, uh, you know, or from uh, the safety of our earbuds, if it's, um, you know, true crime podcasting that we're talking about? Um, what is it that that draws completely normal people with boring lives to <laughs> these types of stories? You know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that because I myself am a huge fan of true crime podcasts and true crime, you know, series. And, you know, I know a lot of other women who are. And it's like, you know, SNL spoofed this with their, you know, their murder <laughs> yes. show skit where, you know, the boyfriend goes off and the girlfriend's like, I'm just going to do some self-care tonight. And her self-care is changing into her, into her pajamas and pouring herself a glass of wine and just watching these like grisly true crime series on Netflix. <laughs> and I so identify with that. And it made me wonder, you know, even specifically, why do women like any of this when women are more often than not the victims of, you know, of these true crime shows? 
And for me, I think it is partially exactly what you said, which is, you know, from the safety of our living rooms, we get to really delve into these horrible, you know, like the darker side of life and the darker stories of life. Um, and, you know, I think that there is a lot to that. And I, there's a, an aspect of that that I always wonder if it's also the fact that particularly for people who grew up um, in the pre-internet age, as some of us did, when really what we had was the evening news, you know, the face on the milk carton, the cover of People magazine, you know, like missing girls on the cover of People magazine, um, and just kind of the tabloids, these snippets of, you know, murder, kidnapping, you know, like mayhem without any sort of context. You just get, you know, the 30 second soundbite on the evening news telling you that some, you know, that a body was found and, you know, maybe a court case follows, but the coverage is not very in-depth. And the, you know, the impression that it leaves on you, particularly as a child, is that the world is this incredibly indiscriminately violent place. And the thing that true crime gives you that, no, you know, the media hasn't provided us up until, you know, this point is a really in-depth story-based look at crime. You know, we've had a lot of police procedurals on TV, you know, everyone's seen Law and Order, but there is a part of me that feels like the thing that we've lacked is looking at real life cases um, as if, you know, like as in-depth as you would um, like a, a story, any sort of narrative. It's, it's about serial breaking down each aspect of that case in an individual episode, taking an hour long or a half hour long, I forget exactly what the format was, but a, a deep dive into each detail of the case. This week, we're looking at the timeline next, you know, like next episode, we're going to look at this aspect of the police report and putting it within the context of a larger narrative. It gives you, first of all, much more empathy for the victim and the people who are, you know, left behind when these crimes happen. Um, you know, the family members, friends, communities. And also it gives you a narrative structure that allows you to understand the what was once a 30 second, you know, TV spot and has become, you know, sometimes 10 hours of content breaking down what happened and what why we think this happened. And that, I think, gives a lot of agency back to the viewer or the listener, um, because a lot of times it's asking you to make your own judgment on what you think happened and why. And there's something oddly comforting about being given that agency back, I think. So from the speculative fiction of and again to the uh, the page turning thriller of the lost girls, um, you're kind of planting your flag in in the world of fiction, uh, you know, to um, to know that when we see a new Jessica um, Chiarella book come out, we we don't exactly know what to expect, but we know it's going to be a thrill ride. What's coming up next from you? Um, I'm working on both another speculative book and another thriller. So hopefully, you know, we'll see which one gets finished first. I love it. I love it. Um, Jessica, we're going to put links to the uh, to the new book in the show notes and uh, make it easy for folks to go find it. It's available everywhere now. The Lost Girls, you can grab it at Amazon. Um, and I, 
is there an audiobook um, to this? I didn't yes, there look is. Before we got, gotcha. Have you heard uh, any of the uh, in any of the samples yet? Oh yeah, it, it was, it's phenomenal. The narrator did a great job. Oh, I love it. I love it. I'm going to have to pick up the audio uh, and listen to it this weekend. Um, I've I've read the arc, but I can't wait to experience it that way. Uh, I know the um, the podcasting aspect probably makes for really uh, in, enjoyable audiobook listening. Yeah, yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, I think it, it yeah, it does kind of lend itself to audio and to, you know, um, to hearing that, you know, those sort of snippets out loud. I, I definitely agree. I love it. Well, whether you want to grab it in paperback or Kindle edition or the audiobook, there's links to it in the show notes of today's episode. Go grab it now or go uh, pick it up from your local bookstore. You know, things are opening back up around the world. Let's support our local bookstores for sure. Um, Jessica, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, where can they find you online? I'm at jessica-chiarella.com or um, Jess Chiarella on Instagram and Facebook or Jess underscore Chiarella on Twitter. Excellent. We'll link those up as well. Uh, Jessica, this has been so much fun chatting. Uh, I'm a huge fan. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Wargate Books presents Hit and Fade, Forgotten Ruin, Book Two, by Jason Onspach and Nick Cole, narrated for you by Christopher Ryan Grant. Chapter One, the army of the dead walked straight into our ambush east of Fortress Hawthorne. That's what the fob is called now, Fortress Hawthorne. Despite it being officially known as Forward Operating Base Hawthorne, as was originally intended when the 50 detachments of various special operations groups came forward through time from Area 51. A one-way mission to save Western civilization from a rampaging nanoplague, destroying the very fabric of said civilization. Apparently, we overshot the temporal insertion point and stuck the landing. Sorta. About 10,000 years too late. Said civilization is now basically something straight out of Tolkien, or Dungeons and Dragons, which we've all now gotten a lot more familiar with thanks to our resident expert and fledgling hedge wizard, the infamous P.F.C. Kennedy. But the Rangers just call it the FOB. The first of our explosives to ruin the leading elements of the Army of the Dead advancing on us Claymore mines the recaptured forge back at Hawthorne had cranked out in the weeks after we'd retaken it from King Triton, were fired by Ranger Sergeant Kang down there with the scouts and Captain Knifehand's assaulters. It was close to midnight when the front rank of bony warriors, carrying rotting shields and spears, eyes glowing malevolently in the deep night mist, advanced into our ambush only to get ruined by the daisy-chained Claymore's sudden eruption. Above us, a cloud-shrouded moon cast a wan yellow light over the battlefield. The night was hot, and spring was coming on full now. The pilots who'd gotten us here in the grounded C-17 back at Ranger Alamo, using their meteorology skills, had guessed it was going to be a long, hot summer ahead of us and an early one at that. 
but there was a cold shiver in the dark on your exposed skin that you couldn't quite explain when you saw the dead advancing rank after rank. The bone warriors carrying spear and shield, other darker creatures barely seen. The lower areas of the earth were graveyard cool and misty, so maybe that was it. Still, the brutal, unrelenting cold of our almost last stand back at Ranger Alamo was gone now. But not the horrors. There wasn't a night that some ranger didn't wake up out of a tormented sleep, breathing heavy, sidearms scanning the dark and looking for orcs and ogres to ventilate. I was sweating in the hour leading up to the attack, despite the night and the mist. Kurtz had us humping hard to get the 240 and all its ammo up to the top of a small hill that overlooked the area where we'd channel the advancing echelons of the Army of the Dead into further fun and games the rangers had planned at a bend in a riverbed. If the approaching Army of the Dead continued on their current course track, they'd enter it for a brief period. It was decided by the captain we'd kill them there and I was sweating. Not because of fear. No, not at all. Firing, whispered Sergeant Kang over the comm as he detonated the mines. And eight daisy-chained claymores spat thousands of steel balls all across the front line of what even I was still finding it hard to believe I was seeing through my night vision device. Skeletons. Warrior skeletons. Ancient warriors like something out of the Bronze or Iron Ages. Worked breastplates of molded plate or rotting scales. Green and tarnished, stamped with the markings of fabled armies fallen in battles long, long ago. Leather cuirasses on some. Rotting boots. Helms with broken horns, missing teeth, tattered leather kilts. Beads and charms dangling from bone wrists. Enigmatic holy signs and primal torques black with grave dirt or from a funeral pyre long ago on some forgotten battlefield far from here, draped about the spine where the throat should be. Where it rises to connect to a bone-white skull that seems filled with malevolent purpose and diabolical intelligence. Malignantly so. Walking skeletons like something out of a Ray Harryhausen clay model Sinbad epic from the 1960s. Above, the sliver of moon gave enough light to strengthen our NVGs, making the night vision devices perform exceptionally well as we sprang our trap and watched the advancing elements get rocked by our initial high-explosive opening bid in the game we were about to play. The air was still and hot in the moments before the fight began as we lay there in the tall, sharp grass, waiting for it all to go down. I was thinking a hot cup of coffee would be nice about now, except my canteen only had cold coffee I'd brewed during the long, silent, and windy afternoon of preparation. Still, I was happy knowing I had some, rather than none. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no further than Pico's House. 
Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started.